Hi everyone, this is Beige for Public. Today our guest is Freddie DeBoer. Freddie is a great writer. He's someone who always seems to have a refreshing take on fraught subjects. So we're very glad to have him here to discuss his new book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Uh, I grew up in Middletown, Connecticut. Um, as I said, my father was a professor of theater at Wesleyan University. Uh, my mother was a nurse. Um, we were uh, privileged to grow up um, in a very lefty household, you know, on a college campus that's famously sort of progressive. Um, <clears throat> my father, uh, his specific specialty was uh, East Asian uh, puppetry and dance. And so we traveled with him fairly often for uh, his research to Bali and other places like that. Um, my mother died of uh, brain cancer when I was seven, which was difficult. Uh, <clears throat> he had already been a pretty uh, debilitated alcoholic uh, and really uh, struggled uh, for the rest of his life after that. Um, <clears throat> uh, and he ended up dying of liver cancer when I was 15, uh, which is exacerbated by uh, all the drinking. Um, <clears throat> but um, after... Uh, High school, I uh, got uh, my BA in English and philosophy, and then I sort of uh, fooled around for several years, just being a young person and um, you know having a series of shitty jobs and you know <laughs> drinking and drugging and sleeping around, and then um, eventually I got my master's uh, and my PhD, um, <clears throat> with, where I focused on uh, uh, educational policy and educational assessment. Uh, and it's and you know I've been a, a freelance writer uh, for about fifteen years as well. And you've done some work in in organizing also, right? Can you give us some of that background? Sure. So I got involved a little bit when I was in high school. It was my first sort of taste of these things. This was in you know, gay rights back when that's what people called it back before you know there was more much of an acronym that you typically saw. Um, this was not just before gay marriage, but it was at a point where gay marriage was still sort of seen as like a sort of, um, sort of fantasy, sort of fantasy desire or not a realistic demand. Um, so at the time it was sort of more just like he gave visibility, gay rights, uh, support for gay people. Uh, you know, my, my father had lived in New York in the seventies and he was in like the black box theater scene, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, he did, uh, he, he worked on some plays with like with Sam Shepard and other people. Okay. And so his network of friends, uh, was very left leaning and a lot of artists and a lot of, um, you know, poets and radicals and stuff like that. Uh, and so unsurprisingly, a lot of his friends were gay. Um, and so I was exposed to gay people at an age that's younger than most people were. And so, um, certainly at that time, I mean, and, um, so it was just a natural thing to do, but it was just, um, you know, sort of starting a club in high school and, uh, making signs and, you know, and handing out leaflets and stuff like that. When I got to college, um, 9-11 happened and, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, uh, very disturbing for a variety of reasons. Um, everything that was happening in response to that. So I got involved with the Progressive Student uh, Alliance um, at my college. And from there, I got involved in anti-war uh, organizing, anti-Iraq war organizing. It sort of branched off and did less with the college stuff and more. Uh, there was a group called CT United for Peace, which we called Cut Up. 
Connecticut United for Peace, that is. Um, you know, by like 2004, 2003, 2004, I was doing like 20 hours a week of anti-war stuff. Um, <clears throat> and that was very, was, you know, the only thing I really felt good about in my life at the time. So it was sort of the organizing principle of my life. By 2005, I mean, I put together my first, my last major sort of protest in Hartford, Connecticut, which went off well, but I was really burned out. Um, you know, the, the anti-war moment, movement was righteous, but it was also a complete shit show in terms of like uh, internet scene fighting and um, just constant sort of red baiting and stuff like that. So um, mm-hmm. I just took time off. I moved to Chicago and I was just, you know, a 24 year old for a while. Right. I just, you know, I just sort of did, did that and had a great time. Uh, when I got to grad school, I did a little bit of sort of grad student organizing. Um, I was the representative from my department at Purdue in the student government, which was the the bargaining unit for our uh, contracts with the university. Um, <clears throat> not that there was much to bargain on. I mean, they, you know, we were very disempowered, but so I did a little stuff with that. And then when I graduated, I got to New York and I dove into tenant activism. Um, in New York has a just famously complex um, and um, extremely politicized sort of housing system and rental housing system with all kinds of sort of pressure points and, and, and places where power is invested. And I did a ton of that for... Um, yeah, like uh, like six years from about six years of that, uh, and now I've since left Brooklyn and moved to, back to home, back home to Connecticut, and I am um, gearing up and doing a little bit of uh, peer uh, support for other people with mental illness. Wow, how is it being back in Connecticut? Uh, it's good. It's you know I I do miss Brooklyn. Um, I still sort of think of myself as a big city person. And I want to sort of maintain that sort of like urban, like supremacist sort of uh, <laughs> attitude. But the reality is just that my um, my quality of life is, is just much, much higher now. It's just, you know, because I, I bought a house um, and mm. um, there's just there was just like I have been very financially fortunate the past couple of years to be able to make as much as I do as a writer. And it still was just completely out of the realm of the possible that I would ever buy anything in Brooklyn. Right. Like it. Yeah. Um, and so now I've bought a nice house and like space is just, I've lived in apartments since I was 18 years old, you know? Yeah. Uh, so like, just like having space is just like a whole new world for me. Um, and you know, it's just my, yeah, my day to day life is just my stress level is way, way down. So I have to say I'm very happy. Yeah, I have fantasies of of leaving LA for some rural place, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, I'd love to know why you decided to write this book, "How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement." Sure. So um, it was uh, <clears throat> early 2022. I don't know, maybe February, January, or February when I started to write the proposal. I believe I formally signed the contract with Simon and Schuster in May of 2022. Um, I had been sort of looking around and feeling like things were a little bit crazy because for several years we had um, lived in a place of extreme political tension, of tremendous political involvement, 
of uh, you know the largest combined protests in the history of the United States, uh, where uh, everyone was talking about radical change, where you know um, the sort of the things that were being considered in the in the twenty twenty Democratic presidential primary were you know miles to the left of what you could have seen as recently as like twenty twelve. Um, and then it just sort of all seemed to be over. And it almost was like people were embarrassed about what had happened. And, and so they didn't want to talk about it. Right. Like mm. we went from having thousands of people in the streets every single day and talking about how America's relationship with race had to fundamentally change forever. And then nothing of substance happened. And, uh, not only did nothing of substance happen, people didn't appear to want to confront the fact that that did nothing of substance had happened and were eager to um, just move on. And I said, well, look, like it's really important that we think about this stuff and we, and we, and we figure out, you know, what went wrong and what we can do better in the future to get what we want. Cause you can't fix anything unless you learn from it. And so I wanted to sort of force that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you argue that you say, quote, in 2020, a year that was sold at the time as a, move, a moment of unique political foment, as a reckoning, we saw the American progressive movement drift from the essential to the inconsequential, from the material to the illusory. And your argument is that, in part, the progressive left failed because of this shift, right? Um from materialist to symbolic and everything that entails, from working class concerns to fixation on identity politics. Uh, and yet you do still want pretty much the same goals as the progressive left, right? That hasn't changed. So are you just arguing that the left went about things in the wrong way? Or is there something, is there something more than that ineffectiveness uh, that's, that's at work with the contemporary left? Well, so I would, um, uh, I think there's a couple different dimensions to that. Uh, if we want to talk specifically about the, you know, the story of America's efforts to grapple with uh, its history of racism and racial inequality, um, the problem that's been the problem for the past 60 years asserted itself in 2020. So in other words, what I would say, like in terms specifically of getting what, you know, getting actual better quality of life for black people um, I think that this is not at all a unique situation, which is um, we don't know what the policy demand is, right? right. So if you, if, if you go back to the you know mid-1960s, it is the heyday of the civil rights movement. Um, <clears throat> the Voting Rights Act gets passed. The Civil Rights Act gets passed. Uh, the, uh, you know, several uh, important efforts to eliminate racial discrimination in housing happen, right? So it becomes illegal to refuse to lend uh, for a mortgage to uh, people based on their race or to refuse to rent an apartment based on someone's race. Um, and then there is a widespread sense after that, that things have sort of stalled. Um, Martin Luther King talks about this, um, you know, in the years before his death, um, that th there was a sense uh, that people didn't know where to, where to go next. The uh, <clears throat> black power movement of the early 1970s um, is, you know, often seen as a result of frustration with the lack of um, progress uh, in sort of racial politics. 
Um, and throughout all this time leading up until now, uh, you have these periodic spurts of understanding that like something needs to change. But the fundamental problem is we've never arrived at one specific policy goal. Um, the Voting Rights Act and, and the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, the Voting Rights, Rights Act is one big thing, right? Make it a, a federal crime to prevent someone from voting uh, based on their race, um, which it sort of empowers a lot of other victories down the line. Civil Rights Act is a, just a big collection of various, you know, um, types of discrimination that are going to be prevented in the future. What's the thing now? Um, Reparations is uh, a policy that uh, I think is very messy, but which I support anyway, which is, you know, uh, giving, you know, cutting checks to black people, essentially. Um, everybody agrees, though, that it's pretty much an impossible political lift. And yet it keeps popping up decade after decade, despite the, the, the politics never getting any easier. And I would argue that the reason for that is because, um, <coughs> uh, the, you know, reparations, whatever else is true about it, it is something that you can do, right? Like, it's an obvious, clear policy. The government knows how to cut checks to people. Why would um, you advocate that as opposed to a class-based approach? Um, I, well, I would, you know, I'll take a class-based approach. Look, um, reparations is worth the risk to me, and it's worth the various uh, sort of ideological downsides. I mean, I get this fairly often. Uh, you're a class-based guy. Why would you rep do rep rep uh, reparations? I do reparations because black people are suffering terribly, and they have been for hundreds of years. And um, it's a reparations is a blunt instrument that, and we need a blunt instrument that might actually, you know, shatter the vestiges of American racial inequality. Right? Um, it, look, it's a nightmare to implement. No matter what, you have to have some sort of a body. Uh, probably a governmental body that decides who's black and who is not, right? Which is unpleasant. Um, and of course, I want to help poor people uh, of all races. Um, but I think when you have a problem that is as enduring and as serious as America's problems with maintaining a permanent black underclass, I'm willing to take those risks. But anyway, like I said, it's not going to happen. The reason why it keeps cropping up is because it's an actual idea in 2020 that that idea became to fund the police, right? I don't think that the average person said, this is the best idea. I don't think they thought like, this is the thing that can solve all of our problems, but it was a policy that you could name and understand. Right. And, um, unfortunately, uh, there was total lack of uh, consistency uh, from one person to the next about what defunding the police means, right? So the people would define it in very different ways. But also it was, it was terribly unpopular, including among black Democrats, which I think is a point that like has to be reiterated over and over again. This question was polled extensively and it is just simply not the case that the average black Democrat wanted to defund the police. In fact, it's been a, a full a finding and polling for a very long time that uh, black voters uh, have fighting crime as a higher priority than any other group, which makes sense if you consider their vulnerability to crime. Um, and so what we have there is just like this moment running up against the same problem we've run up against for 60 years. Uh, essentially, everyone says that things have to change when it comes to race in America. No one can agree what the actual policy should be. Mm -hmm. 
you criticize, I mean, there, there are a number of, of critiques of leftist progressive movements that can kind of apply across the board. You know, when you look at Occupy, when you look at more recent uh, years, and these include lack of policy goals, lack of legislative goals, uh, horizontal leadership, things like this. But when you compare and contrast Occupy was one thing, <laughs> it was ineffectual, but why do you think the left, I mean, in my view, it lost its mind after 2020 or so, and there was this incredible environment of grift, of uh, cynicism, of goals that looked like like leftist progress, but in fact were not. And this, this does relate to your critique of moving from materialist to symbolic and you know, exactly how elites captured the movement. But what do you think it was about this moment that uh, created the the subsequent environment? Um, look, like, I, I think that you, if you're trying to understand like a left-wing sentiment in the United States, so like not like sort of, you know, mainstream liberal sentiment, but actual left-wing sentiment, um, you have to start from the assumption that everybody secretly thinks it's all hopeless, right? Like, so much of what happens is a reflection of a nihilism that's built into our assumptions about how the world works, right? Um, there's a chapter in the book about the uselessness of political violence from the standpoint of American leftists in the, in the 2020s. And several people have asked me, well, that's so obvious. Why include it in the book? And I tell them I had to put it in the book because I hear about that so often, right? Like it, it has been so often in, in my worlds in my political worlds of you know of american lefties um there's you know this desire to you know to grab onto the idea of political you know violent political resistance because they just feel like the system is completely exhausted any opportunity it has for positive change right um i think that uh if you look at, at the conversation about race i think that um in many ways what leftists are sort of demanding is that we sort of treat black people as beautiful victims rather than actually, you know, sort of saving them from their condition. Right. So like um, this, you know, there, like there's the whole sort of like the whole concept of sort of this sort of, you know, black excellence thing, which is like, okay, well, if, if we care about race, then we're going to highlight black excellence and tell people about black excellence and normalize black excellence, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and okay, fine. Right. But, that is in a certain sense, like already an admission that you don't think that you can engage on the level of policy and the material, right? If yeah. you're, if you're essentially like doing a PR campaign for like black people as a concept, it suggests that you don't actually have any faith in your ability to deliver material gains for them. And so I think a lot of what sort of you're describing comes from like, number one, a competitive political culture, where if you are, you know, on the campus of, a, you know, on the campus of a, of a fancy college or you are on lefty social media or if you're in DSA or whatever uh, and everyone around you are people with the sort of radical politics and you want to distinguish yourself, you know, number one, you always want to go a little bit farther than, than the next guy in order to make yourself seem like the most righteous yeah. person. But also, yeah, just like... Um, you know, just a, a comprehensive sense that, you know, real progress is impossible. So um, <clears throat> uh, we're just going to sort of give up. Uh, and 
you know, gravitate towards the, the symbolic over the material. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I see all that. Uh, you, this is just a, a quick quote from the book. You said there's another kind of profiteering that arose from the 2020 moment, a special kind of race hustler. And, um, <laughs> you know, there are lots of examples of this, but how do you understand the dynamic underneath this? Like why there was such a fertile ground? Um, to me, when I just think anecdotally, it just seems like it's a kind of white liberal guilt that's also very narcissistic, performative, that fetishizes minorities and is addicted in a way to this self-flagellation. And in my experience, people who really bought into this are people, white people who have few black friends, <laughs> who really uh, are accepting of this very strange way of mediating relationships with other people through, you know, through these external authorities. And, uh, you know, it to me, it, it always comes down to, it's still a battle over resources. That's why you have this culture of grift emerging and it's just dressed up in like a moralizing language a culture of fear and censorship and self-censorship but i'm wondering what you make of that the sort of underlying condition why this this lit up so much i guess so in investing like like you know like uh, stocks and bonds and etc in the world of investing there is this concept of when um there is more capital uh chasing too few investment opportunities which is when a lot of wacky stuff happens, right? So um, one of the stories of the whole cryptocurrency bubble is that we had extraordinarily low interest rates uh, for a long time. Um, those very low interest rates meant that in, you know, uh, traditional investments were not very attractive, right? Like, you know, you know, why are you going to get a, a CD for 2% or whatever, right? Um, and so there was this all this investment capital that wanted to go places. Um, one of the places it went in, was into increasingly sketchy sort of crypto vehicles, which were very high risk. But people were so desperate to have some place to put that money to get a return. They were willing to do it. Something very similar happens in the world of politics and ph philanthropy. Excuse me. I mean, this is true in like literal money sense, right? So Ibram Kendi's racism center, anti-racism center. Why, why did that get $50 million in donations, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how such an organization would even spend the money. And inevitably, it looks like there's a lot of mismanagement and nothing got done, right? So like, literally, you have white liberals who want to do something, quote unquote, and so they want to give money to something. But you have to have a place to put the money so a ton of nonprofits got rich that have very little to do with racism, but also places like Ibram Kendi's foundation got funded to a degree that was just not justifiable. But it's not just literal money, right? It's also yeah. like investment opportunity for, for righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. A place to sort of put your white guilt and to put your white desire for change um, in a way that's going to come back to you in the return of feeling like you're a good person. And so if you or you're in that position and if you're a white liberal and you feel really guilty and you, you're someone who has sort of, you know, like a big sort of online social circle via Instagram or whatever. So you're picking up sort of signals about who's doing what um, one of these gurus appearing out of, you know, the blue um, can feel really comforting 
because it says to you, if I feel bad about racism and race, and I think a lot of them very genuinely do, if I feel bad about racism um, and I don't know where to put that bad feeling, but here's this person, here's Robin D'Angelo, and she's telling me she's got all the answers for how to be a not racist white person, then it, it like helps me offload that work onto her, right? I no longer have the second burden of how do I be less racist? I'm just going to let the guru do it for me. Except, no, you have to do the work. <laughs> right, which includes buying, buying more books uh, and attending expensive seminars, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's going to be a lot written about this, this period in time. Uh, what do you think, do you have... Do you have more to say about um, what I see as left authoritarianism and a censorship, censorship that arose during COVID? You don't address it too much in the book. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have more, more to say on that. Sure. Um, and I've talked about that for a long time. I've written about yeah. that for many, many years. Um, it comes from a few things. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that it comes from is that... Um, our idea generating class, like the people in media and academia, uh, in the entertainment industry, uh, in the lefty nonprofits, um, you know, the influential nonprofits that produce all these position papers and trainings, et cetera. Um, they tend to come from just a very narrow set of social, cultural, and economic circumstances, right? Um, to a remarkable degree, uh, these people are, are, you know, white people with liberal parents who were raised in affluence, who come from, if not uh, private schools, then from public schools that are unusually sort of well regarded, uh, who have sort of come from a very particular cultural and social milieu. And um, it's not a surprise to them when they show up on campus and almost everyone feels the same way that they do. Uh, and looking around and seeing that it, almost everyone feels the same way that they do, when someone dramatically feels differently, when you have a real sort of person who's sort of sticking out uh, uh, politically or otherwise, um, it feels threatening to them because they've never been in an ideological, ideologically diverse space before. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.